arrived, and with that becomes flu season. So we know a lot of you have had questions about flu shots this year. This vaccine, uh, when given every year, which is what we recommend, it does protect you. It prevents hospitalizations, prevents deaths. How to keep the entire family healthy this mm. fall, especially with flu season right around the corners. Flu shots are great to get in September and in through October. Try to get your flu shot before the end of October when really we expect generally to see really start seeing increases. It takes a couple of weeks for it to really get effective. So, you know, give yourself a little bit of lead time. Um, now's the time to do it. And vaccination still is really the key for, for flu prevention. Like that statue of St. Patrick Steady in the storm Where the need is greatest We open our loving arms The evidence is out there, the recommendations are out there, the guidance is out there, and, uh, and we know that that guidance will work if we, just, if, we, if we educate folks correctly and if we ensure that there's compliance with those, those expectations. Right place, right mind Bringing comfort in these troubled times Cause when you're up against a struggle stronger than you You just have to keep doing what you're called to do When the glory keeps coming makes you want to trust Oh, something bigger than us We are so glad you're joining us for another episode of Krista's Calling, where we're addressing healthcare topics that matter to you. I'm your host, Jillian Fertig. Today, we're talking about flu shots. Should I get one? If so, when? Can I get it at the same time as my COVID booster shot? Will this be a bad flu season? These are just some of the questions we'll be tackling in this episode. I have a master's degree in epidemiology. Charles Monty is the so system director for infection control and prevention and at Christus Health. He goes by Chuck. So I started down the public health track. I had ideas of working for CDC and traveling the world, you know, going after interesting organisms and looking at outbreaks and all that kind of good stuff. Um, didn't actually end up going that direction. I ended up working for a health department actually in the Houston area uh, for a number of years uh, and found that it really wasn't what I was looking for. I uh, had a very good friend who had worked with us in the health department. She got a job in infection control in Houston. I had an opening. She kind of gave me a heads up on it, and uh, the rest is kind of history. And just kind of have done that for the last, I think now almost 15 years, and uh, just slowly kind of worked my way up through uh, pediatric care, adult care, uh, and then now I've been with Christus for about four years. You know, just doing doing the infection control thing. I loved it because it really. I started out school looking at pre-med, so I wanted to go into some sort of healthcare medicine-related field. Uh, and so I went into uh, public health because I really still like microbiology and the whole epidemiology piece of it. But finding infection control really merged the clinical and the epidemiology piece, kind of the, the academic piece versus the caring for patients piece. So that really kind of stuck with me and it's been great. So for our listeners, tell us kind of what your day-to-day -day is like. Day-to-day. -day. There is no day-to-day -day for an infection preventionist, for, even in the normal circumstances. Um, 
my my day to day really now in this role with Christus is figuring out how I can best support the IPs and the ministries. That's really my biggest job is what do they need to do their job well, uh, to be efficient in their work because there's more and more being asked of them, uh, to figure out how we can provide good data to the ministry IPs, to the ministry leaders, um, if they're resources, if they're product issues, anything, in, anything at, at all necessary, orientation, education, whatever it might be, so they can be well equipped and well prepared to do the work they intend to do. So, you know, here I set up, I, I kind of set goals and, and system expectations for IP, but the day-to-day -day thing really is coming in, looking for opportunities to, to help really assist the ministry IPs. And we have folks that are new, we have folks that have been doing it for years, and so they all have different types of needs, every ministry has a different type of need. And so it's just keeping track with that, keeping kind of a barometer on what's needed. Um, and, and just being real proactive and, and being real engaged with the IPs as far as what they need uh, to do their jobs well. Um, and then following up and trying to do so quickly and, and effectively and escalating where I need to or, or educating where I need to or mentoring where I need to. And just that's, that to me is the role. That's a service role. It's, it's what it mainly is. Well, I wanted to jump into specifically and talk a little bit about flu shots ahead of flu season. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of us, as we prepare, like, okay, it's time to go get the flu shot. Mm -hmm. uh, in today's day and age, maybe it's time for the COVID booster shot as well. Mm -hmm. Can I knock both of those out at the same time? Should you be getting those at the same time? Yeah, if um, they can be taken at the same time. The the recommendations are if if it's time to take your COVID shot now, if, you, if you're ready, don't wait to get, you know, if you're trying to get, uh, there's no reason to, to purposefully do them at the same time. They can be spread out. But if when you get your flu shot, it's, it's the right time to get your COVID shot, then get both. It absolutely is okay to do, to do so. Um, but if there's a reason why you need to delay, then, you know, do it appropriately based on the scheduling, you know, uh, from your former, based on the timing from your previous shots. Um, but there's no contraindication, there's no reason not to get them at the same time if it lines up timing-wise with when it's needed. Um, fortunately now with the, that we have a, the booster that has the, it's a, it's a bivariant, so it has the, an original kind of strain in it, or DNA from, or RNA from original strain as well as from the, a newer strain. So we're hoping that it can give us a little bit more protection on what's out there currently. Uh, as well as still boost the immunity that we had uh, from the initial the initial shots that we got the initial vaccinations. Um, so yeah, yeah, you can get both. There's really no no reason not to. Should we brace for a more severe flu season than in years past? You know, it's funny. I we this past season I was really worried. Certainly the flu, the flu season in 2020 was like non-existent because everybody was nobody was around each other. Everybody was wearing their masks. The same things that we do to prevent COVID really do prevent flu from transmitting as well. With with the distancing and masking and, and good cleaning. Um, last year, things were getting a little bit more lax. We were waiting to see what happened. It was a little bit worse of a flu season. And then this year, you know, it's, it's much more lax as, as we're coming into uh, the 2022-23 season. So I think we're all kind of bracing for uh, a, a, a worse season just because we've not been, as a lot of folks have not been exposed to flu for a few years uh, because of the practices that they've been doing. Um, we always look, at what's happening in the southern hemisphere in the summer to kind of help us predict what we're going to see uh, in uh, in our season. And there was some early spikes in flu in some of the other countries. Australia had a real early season that, that really kind of spiked real quickly. And um, so there's some potential out there that we might see a pretty severe early season, uh, which is, you know, the recommendations based on that are 
Uh, get, you know, once we're in September now, so flu shots are great to get in September and in through October. Try to get your flu shot before the end of October when really we expect generally to see really start seeing increases. It takes a couple of weeks for it to really get effective, so you know, give yourself a little bit of lead time. Um, now's the time to do it. And vaccination still is really the key for, for flu prevention. It's not going to necessarily prevent you from getting the flu to a certain extent, but similar to COVID, it will prevent you from getting really sick, going to the hospital, ending up, you know, needing higher levels of care. Uh, and, uh, and certainly we'll be following the data to see how that's going, making recommendations as we can in the hospitals. You talked about prevention, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because I feel like obviously getting the vaccination, but prevention for COVID and the flu, some of those kind of overlap mm -hmm. are similar. Let's talk about some of those specifics. Yeah, so so all the stuff that's worked for, for COVID, which is uh, physical distancing as much as possible, certainly avoiding uh, crowded spaces. If you're ill, somebody is ill, they really need to be trying to not be around other people. That's always been a kind of a standard sort of thing. Um, the wearing of, of, of facial masks uh, will uh, interrupt transmission of bugs that are spread from the mouth and the nose. I mean, it's just going to contain anything that's flying out of your nose and your mouth. So it's going to be the same with flu as it is with COVID. Um, uh, they do behave fairly similarly as far as how they're transmitted. So, you know, as much as we were doing during the COVID peaks to uh, prevent us all from getting each other sick, the same sort of things can help certainly with flu. Um, traditionally, we didn't do that during flu seasons. We just worried about vaccination, um, and that, that got us through the flu season. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see more folks as flu ramps up, seeing more folks masking in public for their own protection and for the protection of others. I think it's just kind of the new normal is folks have the choice. They have the, uh, the supplies to do so, and, and you know, we'll, we'll respect their decisions on whether or not they want to or not. But um, the same practices, uh, good hand washing, good, you know, keeping surfaces clean and disinfected as much as we can. All those things are going to protect from, from both uh, flu and from COVID. What are some of the treatment options out there with the flu and COVID? Some things that you know you want to maybe want to make people aware of. Well, viruses don't you can't really treat a virus the same way you can treat a bacteria. So antibiotics kill bacteria. There's really not a whole lot out there that kills viruses the same way. Um, so a lot of the treatments that are out there are more about treating symptoms and trying to minimize really severe symptoms. Uh, flu for a long time, we've had Tamiflu, which is a, a, really, uh, a really good uh, treatment option, uh, but it really it slows things down. It doesn't necessarily um, eradicate flu faster, but it will speed up the, the process of getting, feeling better and, and getting better. Um, the treatments that are out there for COVID really are things like um, these uh, monoclonal antibody treatments and some of these other things. They're still really trying to boost your immune response more than actually try to do something and interrupt the actual virus and the, what the virus is doing. So a lot of it is, is based on treating symptoms, helping folks make sure that they don't get overwhelmed with their immune response, uh, with their inflammatory responses, how their body is reacting to having this virus within them. Um, that's for the most part how we treat these, these bugs because like I said, they can't, they don't, they're not killed the same way. So we just gotta, we have to make sure that the people are not getting as sick with their other the, kind of the symptoms that are happening because of the infection. Um, and that's, again, that's, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot new with flu as far as treatment has gone for a while. Um, and, and, and honestly, I haven't heard a lot new for treatment for COVID since we've, you know, we've done a lot better and we're not seeing nearly as many cases that are as severe. Uh, but I do think that has to do with the fact that a lot of the treatments that came out over the last 18 to 12 months have uh, really been effective at keeping folks out of the hospital. 
And how, you, how do you determine like, uh, you know, one person versus the other for this treatment or that? Is it based on the severity of symptoms? Yeah, with flu, um, it, it, it's, it's a lot based on severity. It's a lot based on the potential for hospitalization. It's a lot based on risk factors. Uh, so certain folks that maybe are higher risk for having more severe illness will be targeted more for uh, treatments if there are limited treatments available. Um, flu generally is something where if you can treat it from home, we want to do that. We, we, you know, there's really, if we can keep folks out of the hospital and keep, them, keep people at home to get better, that's always better for that individual. So um, as much as we can do to, to kind of move in that direction, the better for those patients. Um, but yeah, a lot of treatments are going to be based on uh, the severity, how they're presenting, how far along their course they are. If, if I've been sick for a couple of weeks and now I'm coming in, I may not have the options of some, some of the treatments because really they're only effective if they're started within the first 48 hours, seven days, you know, depending on what the treatment, there's no specific standard for that. But, you know, get, starting it early, looking at severity, looking at risk factors, how likely are you, how likely are you to progress to severe illness? Those are the kind of things that folks, that physicians generally are looking at to make decisions on, on treatment for that. If you can manage it at home without a treatment, you know, you're not that severe, it's gonna be a rough couple of days, but you know, you can, you can uh, leg it out, then you know, a lot of times that's, that's the best course. A lot of times that is actually the best course. So as a health system, what, are, what can we do to protect our patients and make sure that we're delivering safe care? We're always following uh, best practice, what the current best practices are. The COVID was really challenging because best practices were changing sometimes day by day, it felt like, especially back in 2020. But um, really staying up with what those uh, best, practice, best practice expectations are, um, staying up with the literature, uh, following the guidance of the experts who are really who are there to, to research and, and, and follow all the different science that's out there and, and let us know really what are the best options, as well as what are the options that might be floating around that really aren't great options. We certainly had a lot of that going on uh, during the COVID pandemic as well. Uh, and so as a system, we follow the evidence. We, we, you know, what are the best treatment options? What, are the vaccina va what vaccines are available that we're gonna make sure we have available for our, for our patients and our associates? Um, uh, what kind of prevention strategies are there that we've identified as best practice? Um, and so it's really just following that. It's, we, you know, Chris, is, I'm really proud of the fact that um, we try not to make stuff up where we don't have to, which is really important. Uh, and in, in general situations, the evidence is out there, the recommendations are out there, the guidance is out there. And, uh, and we know that that guidance will work if we, just, if, we, if we educate folks correctly and if we ensure that there's compliance with those, uh, with those, uh, with those expectations. Uh, so leaders are engaged, uh, educators are engaged, or all, you know, all of our teams that help uh, alert folks to what the newest things are are engaged. Um, and we just keep, keep our eyes on, uh, on what's out there, uh, what the recommendations are, and, and follow them. Are there any common myths or misconceptions out there that you want to address? It could be about COVID, the flu, any of that? You know, I think a big thing with, with the vaccines that's still really um, common that, that folks, that, that I think is important for folks to, to know is that there's a misconception between vaccination and immunity that is an important distinction. And there's a reason that we don't call it a COVID immunization. It's a COVID vaccination. And, and there's, there's some crossover that I think gets a little bit confusing. Uh, the vaccine for COVID, you can still get another vaccine and you can still get COVID. We know that, we've seen that plenty of times. Um, and a lot of the coverage on it was really difficult because that was what was always breakthrough case. So there's another breakthrough case. This person was vaccinated and they got COVID. 
And so what's, what's tricky about that is we know that's the case. The data is there to show that it's only so effective at preventing somebody from getting sick initially. What it's really good at, like 98% of the time, you're not gonna end up in the hospital. You're not gonna die from COVID. Those are the two huge things. And those are the big, those are the big strains on our health system are people being, you know, so many people getting so sick that they have to be hospitalized that then our hospitals are overcrowded. If you have a heart attack, there's no beds to go to. If you have a car accident, there's nowhere to go because all this, you know, you have ERs on divert. Uh, there's nowhere to go to get to receive your care. So if we can people from get, if we can prevent people from getting uh, severely ill or you know life threatening with their illness from COVID and for flu, it's the same thing with flu. Then it's an effective vaccine. That's really what the goal is to, is to prevent that. So I think that that's an important thing to to make sure folks are aware of. Getting the vaccination for COVID, for COVID, getting the vaccination for flu is not any kind of guarantee that you're not going to get sick from either COVID or from flu but it will provide amazing protection at getting very sick and potentially hospitalized uh, or potentially with a life-threatening illness. So, you know, I think as more people think about it that way, I would like to think that as more people think about it that way and if it's presented in that manner, then maybe we can start getting more of an uptick because, you know, vaccinations, boosters, there's not a lot of folks that are getting them. Um, but if we can continue to talk about it in that manner, then, then maybe we'll get some, some, some t uh, upticks in that. There are going to be folks, you know, we, we've worked through folks who, who don't believe that the vaccine is, is appropriate or they have concerns about what the vaccine, you know, whether it's going to do this or that to me, you know, some of that stuff early on. I don't hear as much about that now. I, more of what I hear is I'm still going to get it. And then my answer is always you might get it, but you will not get as sick. You will not have a life threatening illness. Uh, and hopefully that can sway some some minds. So what about flu shots when it comes to kids? Kids in school need to be really good hand washers. That's, that's something that, that I worked with my kids a lot as they were growing up. And I know that teachers, even before the pandemic, were really pushing hard to make sure that their kids, especially my, my elementary school kids, they'd you know, line up after certain points and they'd all wash their hands. And hand washing in schools is super important because there's not a whole lot of other stuff that can be done on a routine basis. There, I, still see kids in my, I still see kids at my children's schools who are wearing masks support, you know, I, I want kids to support other kids in those decisions. You know, if that's, if that's their best course, you don't know if that kid has an autoimmune deficiency or if they have other something, or maybe they live with a grandparent who is super high risk. It, we need to not have a stigma for the decision to wear a mask by an individual. So that's, that's a couple of things there. Um, of course, vaccinations again for where we can vaccinate against. But one thing that I think is really, really important is that we were good at for a couple of years is, and it's hard, is if your kids are sick, don't send them to school. And I know that's really tricky for parents as they work, as maybe they don't have great options, but that's, I think, something that if we all can really hone in on that, and it's the same for work, um, if, if we can keep ourselves at home, whether it's us or our kids, when they are not well, and, and don't blame everything on allergies, because a lot of folks have allergies, but a lot of things aren't allergies. If we, can, if we can try to work through that piece of it, if we can just really support each other in those decisions and have school administrations and teachers that can really be supportive and say, you know, here's your assignments, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna do everything we can to support these decisions to keep people that are actively ill from exposing a bunch of other kids, then that's gonna go so far. I, I always laugh about these kids that have perfect attendance records from kindergarten through senior year. How, how many times did they go to school sick? I know they had to have gone to school a number of times that they were <laughs> sick in order to keep this, this record. And I mean, it's an accomplishment, but you know, it's one of these things that's like, it's at what cost potentially, you know? 
And I just, I think that we need to really be cognizant as a, as a society of, there's no heroics in going to work or school when you're ill, really, because you potentially are going to do something, you're gonna cause somebody harm if you do so. Uh, especially in areas like school. I mean, I work in an office with a door that I can close. Probably not as high risk for me, but if I'm going to school, if I'm working with other people, if I'm in a room with you guys, the last thing you want is for me to be in here sick because, you know, who knows what's gonna happen down the line for anybody. So I think that that's really important. You know, you can do a lot of stuff, but if we can, as a, as a, just as kind of a, as a people, as a community, support not going to school when you're sick and have the, the schools being really resourceful and supporting that, I think that'll go a long way across the board. Things are different now because of, I mean, the COVID, the pandemic really interrupted the normal processes that we've seen. And so we don't know when something's gonna be circulating anymore. We can have ideas, but you know, things are just different. Um, we have to, we can't rely on historical sort of things to, to tell us when is gonna be the next RSV, when's gonna be the next flu, when, when are we gonna see this and that, so. I think that, you know, really to me, and, and I stress it, I've talked to our HR folks about it, how can we really support not just us, but parents, other folks, if they need to stay home with a sick kid, if they have a sick kid, you know, how can we really support that so that we're not, so that we're knowingly not exposing folks when we don't have to? While we were on the topic of viruses, we asked Chuck about the latest on monkeypox. It's been in the headlines for months now, and we wanted to know his latest take on it. It seems to be coming down. The data is, is strong internationally that things are coming down. There's been a lot of uh, really good, fast epidemiologic uh, research that was done on the types of cases that were being seen. and and. There were some very focused populations where monkeypox was a problem, uh, more so than anywhere else, like 95, 96% were coming from sp some specific populations. And some really strong, very simple prevention strategies were put in place in those populations that were, that were put in place to prevent uh, transmission, um, making better just life decisions, some things that were happening. And, uh, and we've seen very quick response from that. Um, fortunately, monkeypox is hard to transmit. It's not an easy bug to transmit. And so you can do things on this, in, in kind of this manner of focusing in, and you can cause quick interruptions because we're not trying to catch up with this huge gamut of all this stuff that's happening just to oh, so many people. So um, we see the data just is getting, it's getting better. It's getting better. We're seeing, we're seeing fewer cases. We know what to target. We know who to target. We know populations to reach out to for prevention strategies. We know how to prevent, uh, how to really reduce and prevent the exposures within hospitals because it's very similar to the COVID process on how we prevent it there too. So we're, we're in good practice. Um, we've got good tests available. And we didn't have to build brand new tests like we did for COVID because we already had tests that were available. So a lot of things lined up to help us out uh, to get to a better place faster with monkeypox. Uh, and, and the data so far, you know, fingers crossed, have been positive and going in the right direction. It's coming down. Um, you know, it's also not something that's causing you know huge numbers of deaths. And it's it's you know it can, it can be very painful. Uh, it can be very usually the folks that are in the hospital are, are are so for pain management as opposed to other things. Vaccinations are, are available for high risk individuals. Uh, there are treatment options that are available. It's the same. It's similar treatments to what was done for uh, for smallpox. It's still kind of investigative, but it's out there and there's an emergency use uh, authorization to use it under certain circumstances. So uh, we know what to do. I think it was just a, 
a lot of the practice that we had from 2020 was able to really jump in and help with, uh, with monkeypox, and we've seen good results from it. You've probably figured this out by now, but the Christus Calling podcast is all about sharing stories of hope and healing. So we asked Chuck to think back on his last few years and tell us about how his job contributes to the Christus Health mission of extending the healing ministry of Jesus Christ by offering hope and healing. So a couple of things. Uh, I'm not so far out from being a bedside IP. Uh, when I came from San Antonio, I was, uh, I was the leader for that hospital system, but I also had a hospital that I was covering. I had to, you know, walking, doing rounds, talking with nurses, doing all the things. And so I'm here, uh, it's about 18 months in at that point. I feel like it's not, it's been way longer because we went through this. But um, there's this, you know, I almost was, I almost felt guilty for being here while the folks that are doing the job that I was just recently doing are working tireless hours, trying to meet deadlines and providing all this, uh, all these updates and, and all the, doing all these things that they're generally not asked to do and having to make compromises, which is really challenging from an IP perspective. And, and there was like this, almost like this kind of survivor's guilt, which isn't the right terminology, but that's kind of how it felt being here. And so I know that just from that kind of idea of how I'm caring for people, I really wanted to do everything I could to make sure that at least from myself, that I was letting folks know that they were appreciated, that they were seen for the work that they were doing, talking with their leaders and making sure that, please don't forget to recognize these people, they're doing great things, you know. Um, and it's not, you know, I may, I may be the voice that's on the call or doing the town hall or on a video that we're putting out on Central, but, you know, follow up with your people, talk to your people. I'm going to support them. They are your local experts. Please do. Not that I'm trying to add more work to them, but I want them to feel like they're appreciated for the work that they're doing. We didn't have a lot of turnover. We didn't have a lot of folks running to the hills kind of screaming in the middle of it, which early on I was worried about. But I think as a system, we did a good job supporting um, our IPs and our quality and our safety folks so that they had what they needed to do their jobs well um, through this very, very difficult time. And, uh, and, and we've all come out you know, stronger, I think, for it. A really cohesive team um, that, that we feel equipped to, to respond now to really almost anything since we've gone through this. So that, that's kind of how I felt like that with, with my team specifically. Uh, and then as a system, I'll tell you what, what really I'm, I'm proud about probably more than anything is the work that we did related to visitation during the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, a lot of health systems across the country, um, out, of, out of genuine concern for their associates, um, fully restricted visitation across our hospitals, no visitors. Um, we were very, our, our nurse leadership, our nurse execs and our physician execs were very quick to um, ensure that we were providing appropriate visitation expectations for our hospitals, knowing that we did need to do some restrictions, but that taking a loved one away from somebody in a very fragile state in a hospital, a scary hospital, where there's a lot of people that are very ill in a situation where people are unfortunately passing away very quickly in situations where they wouldn't have expected to, that's, I mean, that's tragic. I think about all the folks that are out there and the nurses who are having to be the loved ones now. They're not just the provider, they're actually being like that family member holding somebody's hand as they're passing away. How can we get family back in this hospital and do it safely in all of our hospitals? And um, a lot of folks were coming to me saying, well, can we do this? You know, you're the infection prevention guy, can we do this? And I, my answer was always, absolutely, we need to do this. And nursing leadership was absolutely, we need to do this. Physicians, absolutely, we need to do this. And we were ahead of the curve. I feel like on, on bringing visitors back into our hospitals, doing so in a manner that we, we felt was safe 
and that we have not seen any negative impacts from to our associates. We've not seen outbreaks from the communities that are showing up in our, in our associates, or, or at least we've not been able to identify any. And, and I think that that was really powerful for our patients, certainly, for our associates, you know, knowing that they're, they're, they can see these folks back in there and they, can, they, can, they don't have to be that person. They can do their job without having to also be that person has a love on somebody like, uh, like a family member will. Um, also knowing that we're gonna prevent things like falls and pressure ulcers because we have a set of loving eyes that's, that's there to, to help keep, you know, keep watch on these, on these patients. So that was something to me that, that I think we got, we got ahead of really early um, and we're able to, to really make a, positive, positive, uh, uh, experience, a more positive experience for our patients that maybe some other hospital systems, again, well-intended, uh, didn't do as quickly. And now we're all getting to that point. Now really I think the standard across the country is, um, you know, visitors are, visitors are a necessity. Family members are a necessity to good care. They're part of the care continuum and we have to have them there. Otherwise, uh, there will be negative effects to it. And the research also is showing that. So we feel very vindicated in, in the decisions that we made or validated in the decisions that we made and the direction that we took. Um, but I was proud of our, our leaders for, for asking those tough questions and, and really challenging um, uh, what was kind of the, the knee-jerk response with an appropriate, evidence-based, safe response that was going to be best for, for all parties involved. So, really powerful. Like that statue of St. Patrick Steady in the storm Where the need is greatest open our loving arms. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Christus Calling. I'm your host, Jillian Furtick. Right place, right mind, bringing comfort in these troubled times. Cause when you're up against a struggle stronger than you, you just have to keep doing what you're called to do. When the glory keeps coming, makes you want to trust. Oh, something bigger than us. It's something bigger than us.